We have been talking about 1 Corinthians. I'm excited to go back into this book. I've been, um, I know I've talked a lot about our Bible apps on our phones, and I don't know if any of you have been using yours or gotten used to it. There's, there's a, it's amazing today what, what can be done. So this morning I was, I was just thinking, you know, I just want to hear this book all at one time. And one of, the, one of the people in the church here has kind of inspired me. He's, he's been reading through the New Testament, and I bet you he's already finished reading the entire New Testament in the last few weeks. And what we were talk, he came to my office on Monday, and as we were talking about it, he was just saying, it's such a different way to understand Scripture, to read some of these books in their entirety in one setting. It's almost like you get a whole new view of what the author was trying to say because typically we just take the portions that we're familiar with or that we're trying to read or we read a section, and that's appropriate. But when we remember that these books were often written for us to read all at once and to understand that there's a point larger than just the individual points that we find in them. And I would encourage you, if you have some time and would like to just, maybe you have one of these great Bible apps or you have a computer and you can go to... um, uh, what is the one that U version? Thank you, sir. U version is great because it'll read it to you, and some of the versions will read it to you if you want a dramatic English actor voice. I think I was listening to that today in the NIV, and then got a little tired of that and started listening to a different voice in a different version, and it was it was amazing. I and then I switched over to King James, and it was fun to listen to that version. I haven't heard that version in a long time, and it was interesting to hear just just the old English style and how that sounded. But as we do that tonight, as we kind of take a look, I just want to do a little quick review of what we have been talking about. The fact, first of all, that these Corinthians, it wasn't a building. These are people, just like us. This church, Crown Point Church, is certainly a building. There's a building, Crown Point Church, and we are a church, but it's really more than that. And it's more than that because it's something that unites all Christians across all generations and across all ethnicities and cultures We are Christians. We are the church. And when Paul writes to this church, this church was a young church. It was a church full of people who had recently been pagan. It's a church that he had gone to and he had started. Probably most of the people there have been Christians under 10 years at the most. The church wouldn't have been all that large. They didn't meet in large buildings. They didn't have buildings at this point in history. This church was probably anywhere between 50 to 90 people at the most. And it was made up of people. Churches are people. And since, remember we talked about how the Greeks like logic? Thought we'd do a little syllogism. Anybody take logic ever? Let me, let's, let me show you how it works. It's not very complicated. It's kind of silly, really. But churches are people. People are messy. So churches are what? Messy. It's a little formula. It's how we, how we construct you know, arguments like this. So churches are messy, and that's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about a messy church where things are going wrong, and he's coming in to help, help them with this. Now, as we mentioned, Paul is the author. Paul is a fascinating scripture, a person in Scripture because he's unique in a lot of ways. He, he wasn't one of the disciples, but he was somebody who was a, officially an apostle because he had a personal encounter with Christ. And as he talks about, he talks about being taught by Christ. He even says in the book of Corinthians that he saw him with his own eyes. That makes him a different character, a really interesting character. Not only that, as we talked about, he was raised under a very famous uh, Jewish teacher named Gamal. I mean, he's well-known in history, this teacher. That was Paul's teacher. He was a Jew of Jews. 
just he followed all the Jewish laws and he wanted to be a good Jew. And part of that for him was destroying this early church. This is who Paul was. And he had to take a period of time, some estimate as many as 14 to 17 years before he, would, he was ready to minister back to that church. But even then, he was still famous as a persecutor of the church. This is Paul. He was born outside of Jerusalem, and he spoke many languages. He was a Roman citizen. He was a unique individual. He was well-versed in philosophy. In fact, it's, it's recognized that he could, he could have spoken to this church in formal logic, but he didn't. He specifically said he didn't do that because he wanted them to, to grow in their faith and grow in their faith because of Christ and the Holy Spirit, not because of fancy logic or fancy talking. But that's Paul. He could have done all that. So when he comes to them, he comes to them and he establishes his authority as an apostle, an apostle of the church. And he reminds them that he is the one that birthed them into Christianity. He was a missionary evangelist started tons of churches. He wrote more books in the New Testament than any other author. He's an amazing, prolific man. We know that he was also their spiritual father. So as you read this book, you see he's telling them things and talking to them in ways that might remind you of a dad correcting a child. Some of the words he uses, in fact, some of the things we'll read today, if, if we were to read that in a letter, let's say, let's say, Pastor Newby had founded this church and then was away and then he heard something was going wrong and wrote us a letter back. <laughs> and we would be, he would just be correcting us. He'd be saying, get over it, right? And you would hear those words echo in your mind because you were there and you know him and he's been a spiritual father to many and so that would be a familiar term you would hear. Any other familiar terms you might hear from him? Hello. <laughs> right, you might, he might write those things. And so I want you to imagine as we're reading this, some of this chapter that Paul is similarly talking to his, his children in the faith. Not only that, he's a pastor to them. And as he's pastoring them, his job is, he's already won them to Christ. Now his job is to shape them into the person that they need to be as they follow Christ. That's a different role. He's going to guide them in the faith and correct them a little bit. That's what he's going to do. Now, he started off really nicely. You remember how he complimented them a lot? Remember how we talked about that he opens up the book calling them saints? Even though he knows better than anybody that they are very far from saints. And they weren't saints when they came there, just like us. That's why we're calling this series Crown Point Corinthians, because it's no different than we are. And yet God calls us saints. We're granted sainthood not based on our merit or based on how good we are or how smart we are or how close we follow Christ. The, the truth is that when we come to him, none of us could follow close enough to really gain sainthood. But that's what Paul calls them. So he compliments them. He compliments them also on their many spiritual gifts. And that's something that he recognized that was in them. So he compliments them. Then he reminds them of who they are in Christ and reminds them how they should be living in Christ. That's a great, great way to do things, isn't it, with people? If somebody's not walking in the way they should walk, you just want to remind them of the ideal you know, sometimes it takes that to say, hey, this is what should be happening. And then hopefully they'll recognize where what should be and what is. They could recognize the difference in themselves and make some corrections. But unfortunately, that's not the way it ends because Paul goes on and he does some correcting. Anybody here like being corrected? Did you know that studies after studies shows, show that we learn more from our failures than our successes? Isn't that sad in a way? <laughs> It'd be nice just to sail through life and never have a problem, but that's not how we're made. 
And the truth is that as these as these people get corrected by Paul, we know that that church had to be improving. Now, I say that because even though none of us really looks for or likes correction, we should look at it as a healthy, positive thing from a pastor because that's what they're there to do. Pastors are not just there to, to do all the complimenting and the reminding. Some of it is going to require correcting. There's going to be times where a pastor is going to need to correct. And I say that because you need to hear it. And there's going to be times where it's not going to be comfortable. And you may not even like it. You may go home and think, I don't think I want to hear that from him again. But we need to. And who better? Who else? Who loves you more? I mean, the reason Paul is doing this because these are dearly loved spiritual children of his. He's not doing it to be mean. He's not doing it to be cool and cold and crass. He's doing it because he cares about them and he wants the best out of them. He wants them to achieve what, what he knows is in them, what God has placed in them. And well, all that said, we're going to do just a little diversion here, and I, I'm going to need some audience participation. I'm just curious, what, what does a Christian look like? Because that's what Paul's trying to create here is solid, good Christians out of pagans. And since that's pretty much what we were and are, tell me, will you, for just a minute, what does it mean to be a Christian? What do Christians look like? They all have good beards. That's right. That's true. What else do Christians look like? What, other, what do Christians do? What, what are characteristic of Christians? Say that again. Helpful. Generous. Generous kind. Smile. Do they, they do. Okay, love, forgiving. Some do. All right, what else? Patient. What? Instruct? Instruct, okay. Anything else? Is that it? Joy, serving. Say that again. They make mistakes, okay. Self-control. Okay, so you're saying they're not perfect, Dave? Okay. Anything else? They pray a lot? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it's not about them. They're relying on, on a higher power. God himself, and yeah, they need a lot of help, and so they pray and ask for it. That's good. Anything else? They see. <laughs> I knew he was talking about me, but I'm not sure who she was talking about because she said they seem weird and odd. So maybe she wasn't <laughs> talking about me. Oh, to people who are not Christians. Oh, okay, I see what you mean. Okay, they're different than the world in a lot of ways, and, and you've named a lot of those ways. And you have. You've, I think you've been very accurate in all of that. You've named a lot of ways that we as Christians should look different. We should be totally different. And we mentioned that they sin. Everybody does. There's no such thing as a perfect Christian. So with that in mind, that's the ideal. What, what you have listed, I mean, I think is a well-rounded picture of what Christianity should be. So as we look at that, now let's look at uh, chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Dear brothers and sisters... When I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in the Christian life. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger, and you still aren't ready. Ouch. What if that's the letter we got from Pastor Newby? Wouldn't that hurt a little bit? Would you recoil at that, bow up a little bit, and say... Wait a minute, who does he think he is? How does he know? Or what? Would you? 
Because with Paul, he knew. He had been there. He worked with them. He knew these people. He had lived with them. He wasn't that far removed. And what he is doing is he's calling them exactly what they are. And he has the authority to do it. He has the position to do it. He's the right person to do it. So as we work through this, I just want to ask you a couple questions that may be a little uncomfortable as we go. Do any of these things apply to us? I mean, as we go back and take a look, is it true that maybe we are immature like that and we, need, we can't handle the, you know, the good stuff and we have to go with the simple stuff? That's a painful thought to think. I hope that's not me. And then, isn't it Paul who, who said earlier in chapter 2 that he didn't use lofty words or impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan? Was that maybe because they were a little simple and couldn't handle it? Is that what he's saying to them now? I mean, earlier in the book he was complimenting them, and now he's getting to the correcting part. And hopefully they're ready to receive it. Hopefully their hearts are tender enough to their spiritual father that they can receive correction from him. Yes. Lofty means like big words, way up high. This, this language isn't uncharacteristic of Scripture. The author of Hebrews says something kind of similar, which is really painful too. The author of Hebrews says in 5.12, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths about God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. I would say ouch again. And as if that's not bad enough, the verse right before in verse 11 is mean too. It says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. (laughs) That would be tough, wouldn't it? Your your spiritual father saying, I'd like to teach you a lot of things, but I don't know if you're going to get it. I don't know if you're capable of getting it. Crown point. Is this us? Is it us at some level? I would like to think not. Of course, we all want to think we're better than that. And, you know, we think that, you know, we've, that's true of them. But, you know, that was, that was the first century, you know, Greek, Corinth. And we're much more modern and sophisticated than that, right? We don't have any of the problems they had. I mean, we're not, we're not like that, right? Paul's talking about maturity here. What he's talking about is... These are Christians that he had been working with, but he's not seeing them grow up in the faith at the pace and the the maturity level that they should have been at by now. And what he's saying to them is, I would have hoped you would have been past this stage, but you're not. You're you're not where you should be. He goes on, and he explains a little bit why he's saying these harsh things to them. For you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove that you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? Still controlled by your sinful nature. I use the NLT version right here for that verse. Does that describe any of us? Have you noticed times where you're doing things that you think, man, where did that come from? I thought I was over that. And there's times where in our life, as we're walking out our faith, that you find yourself literally controlled by your sinful nature. But, but Paul has said in other places, and we, you've been taught, you know that that sinful nature was crucified with Christ, right? And, and you're a new creation. 
and the blood has washed you clean. Now, maybe some of you are sitting here thinking, well, that's not me at all. But you know what? I think, I think if we're really honest and transparent, we'll have to admit that at times it is. And I don't mind identifying with the Corinthians because what I see in them is what I see in me. And the fact is that as much as I want that sinful nature to be completely gone, there are times where it's there. And when I admit it's there, then I can deal with it. Let me look at some of the, let's look at some of the other versions of the way that phrase is interpreted. NIV says you're still worldly. The uh, King James is familiar probably to most where it says you're carnal. We've heard that phrase, Pastor mentioned it Sunday, carnal Christians. You're, you're still influenced by your corrupt nature. You know, some people would like to tell us that human beings aren't, don't have a corrupt nature. That we're born good and it's society that turns us evil. Have you ever heard that? Anybody who's had a child knows that's not true. I mean, it doesn't, if you've had a child and you've raised a little a, a child, they come out so perfect and beautiful and you think your child is going to be different than all other kids, right? <laughs> Remember how that was? And you would be critical, especially, I know I did this. I have an older sister and she had kids before me. And so I remember thinking, oh, my kids will never be like that. They'll never do that. And they do, because they're human beings. And it's in us. It's in us to say no and to say mine. And it's in us to hit and to fight and to be jealous. That's how we are. That's what it's talking about. This, this sinful nature, this worldly, carnal, corrupt nature. It's in us. It's in us and through us, and it's natural, and it's, it's normal for every single human being. And the sooner we admit that and start working on that, the sooner we... We will start to mature and be able to deal with it and the reality that it is. The Christians that worry me are the ones who deny that it's there and act as if nothing is wrong. Because they're the ones who are going to stumble and fall and be so shocked that something went wrong. Because we are all like that and we all have it. But let me ask you a question with that. And this is just, this is just a question I'm asking. Is it possible then for someone to be a worldly Christian? I mean, are they even a Christian? I mean, it sounds like Paul is saying that there's different kinds of Christians that, that maybe some Christians can be worldly, and do you still get in that way? You ever wonder about that? How worldly you can be? How much of your carnal, sinful, whatever nature, corrupted nature you can allow to control you and still make it? I mean, have you ever wondered? Is it just me? You ever ask somebody? How close to the line can you get before it's really sin? And I would ask you this too. I know we talked about this not too long ago where I had some good Lutheran friends and they would tease us, uh, Assembly of God people, of having our line of faith. You know what that is, right? Remember I told you? It's right here where somebody prays that prayer and then boom, they're in heaven. They're, they're Christians now because they prayed the prayer. And they said, but we're not being critical of you alone because we have our own line and that, for us, is confirmation. And then once a kid finishes the class and takes the test and gets confirmed, then they've crossed the line. And what we were talking about and what he was getting at is the truth is, that's not a line. It's not about that. 
It's not about just praying a prayer and saying, ooh, I'm in, now I can live like whatever and let the worldly nature reign in me. The fact is what they're saying, what they were saying, and I loved hearing this from these brothers because what they were talking about is where is the passion for Christ and the growing desire to be more and more like him and not be looking for any line, but in being looking and how close I can get to him, not how far away I can be and still make it. Anyway, is it the prayer? I was just going to goof around with this stuff because it's none of those things, obviously. I think of it's more like this. And I think we make these incremental steps. I, I love C.S. Lewis, and I, I read him almost every day and think about some of the things he says. And he, I read a quote of his today that talked about it's the little tiny steps we take either toward God, which makes us more godly, or toward the enemy, which makes us more, um, what, how do you put it, ghoulish? or Anyway, think about it like this. There's a normal progression if you... You have thoughts. We all have thoughts. Having a thought that's errant or worldly or carnal or fleshy or whatever those different, different translations said, a thought in itself is not the sin. It's the thought that you let dwell and grow and then start to shape an attitude. And these thoughts can be anything. They can be anger. They can be bitterness. They can be jealousy. They could be sexual. They could be so many things that you know where it leads. And the thought itself, sometimes you just entertain it instead of kicking it out and knowing that it's wrong and it leads to something worse. And it ends up being an attitude that ends up being an action that ultimately becomes a habit, that becomes your character, that ultimately is who you are and defines you. I think about this a lot when I'm driving someplace and I see somebody maybe on the corner and maybe you can tell that their life is lost and you wonder, do they plan to be there? How did they get there? I don't know if you've ever fed, you know, homeless people. I know we used to do that a lot, especially in L.A., down on Skid Row. There's places over, like, on Fifth and Town in L.A. where, I remember I was down there with a good friend of mine once, and we, we were walking down there. It was a really hot day, and there was, there was nobody around. I said, well, where is everybody? And they said, well, there's, there's, there's soup kitchens, and there's places to get fed, and there's, a, there's like, a schedule. And so people kind of move around, and, you know, they'll be back. And I said, oh, okay. And he goes, well, they'll be right here. And we're standing there by this building, and there's a sidewalk, and there's all these, it looked like lines. I said, oh, what, what in the world are those lines? He goes, well, it's kind of like, the, it's where they've been laying, and it's like the oils and stuff. It's just, they lay right there. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, not one of them planned to be there. That's not what they thought their life was going to be. How did it end up like that? It really comes down to the things that Paul is trying to define here carnal Christian? I mean, that's not really the the issue here. I think a lot of times what Paul is talking about here is really a baby Christian. Because think about it. These people had just, a lot of them come out of paganism and they probably continued to come out of that. And they were probably pulled back and forth by family and culture and history and friends. And you know how hard it can be. I was talking with somebody just a couple weeks ago who was telling me, yeah, I'd like to be more of a Christian. I'm struggling Every one of my friends I went to high school with is an alcoholic now. So what do I do? Where do I go? I don't know anybody really at church to hang out with, and they don't know me, and all my friends I know are out there. It's real. That's real. So these baby Christians are struggling. And what do baby Christians do? What do babies do? Make a lot of noise, right? Kind of annoying. Don't know when to act. They're kind of selfish. They think it's all about them. 
They think you should serve them. Isn't that what babies do? And we don't criticize a baby for that because it's a baby. But a baby Christian, what do we expect out of a baby Christian? I mean, what would it be like if all these baby Christians came in to this church? It'd be a little weird, wouldn't it? What does maturity look like? How long does it take to get mature? How long is it okay to be a baby? Have you ever known an 80-year-old baby? I have. Some of them I was related to. And you end up talking to them and you think, wow, you are the most catty, immature, petty person I think I've ever known and you're 80 years old. How did you make it through life like this? Just being mean and picking on people and why didn't they ever grow up? But can people do that in their Christian faith too? Sure they can. Of course they can. People do it all the time. So what does this maturity look like? Here's some things I think we should talk about. I think it's important to realize that maturity, especially in the Christian life, comes in stages. It comes in stages. It doesn't happen overnight. I want, think of church like this. And we don't often do this. We think of church like, remember that Christian we described earlier? We think of churches for them, don't we? I, I do. But it's not. It's not just for them. Think of it instead like this. What if, what if this was the church and it's more like a dinner table and instead of you know, pews, but like there's three chairs. And let's say this first chair is that Christian. That's you. I'm sure it's all you. Great Christians, mature in their faith, pray all the time, happy, smile, right? Smile all the time. Problems, you have problems, you make mistakes, but you're forgiven. I'm talking about real maturity. I'm not making fun of it. I'm serious. Real mature Christians. But don't we often think that's what the church is full of or should be full of? But that's not really the picture of the church that we see in Corinthians. And it's not really the way that God intended it. Because if it was just that, then we might as well just go to heaven now. Because we're done, right? We're ready to go. It's us four, no more, let's go. I used to tease kids on the bus coming down the hill from California. Like if they all got saved at camp or something. So you guys are all saved now, right? And they'd say, yeah. All right, let's go to heaven. And they're like, what, what? You know, you kind of, not, but kind of swerve to the edge a little, and then they're, no, not right now. So you got your chair with all the Christians. Now there's two more chairs. What if this chair was for baby growing Christians? What would they look like in the church? Wouldn't they do things that sometimes would annoy us or you would wonder, hey, don't they know the rules here? Don't they know when to raise their hands or when to... They don't get it yet. They don't know. And there's times where maybe they're going to be self-centered or maybe they're not going to tithe. They don't know the rules. They don't know that they're supposed to contribute and be part of the thing. They're just there to get because they're babies and they're maturing. But folks, if we don't have those people in the church, then the church isn't growing and it's not doing what it's supposed to do. There's a third chair, too, that we don't often have in church. And I think the reason we don't have this third chair represented in church is is mostly these guys' fault. Because for these guys, if they were really mature and doing what they were supposed to do, then they would be patient with the babies and the growing people and helping them mature. And then they would also be bringing people who were curious and maybe skeptical and maybe just wondered what it was all about. But a lot of people out there, they don't want to come in here because they think you're all perfect and too good for them. 
and have it all together and judge them and think their stuff is horrible and don't talk to them. And How many people who really are curious about Christianity do you even know? Would you bring them? Would you say, come and check this out? There's, this is a cool place. There's a lot of fun people. You get to know them. And, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to bring them here. We try to have events that help that happen. Even a Valentine's banquet is a great opportunity to bring somebody who wouldn't normally come. I mean, this concert thing would be great. I wouldn't want to go because it's like girl concert, but I'm just saying some people would really love to do that. We're having a men's breakfast in a couple Saturdays, which, you know, guys, we're... Those are opportunities for you to bring people and people that could come and check it out. And then when they're here, then it's our job, the people on this side, to look over there and say, oh, that per- I've never seen that person before. And then you go up and talk to them and make them feel comfortable and make them want to be here more. That's how it's supposed to be. That's what the whole picture of maturity looks like. And what Paul is talking about and trying to deal with here is immature Christians. But I think for some of us who've been maybe raised in church or been around a long time, you get impatient with those folks. And yet, that's the fullness of the church is going to have newbies in it. Sorry, I thought, you know, Spellcheck, Spellcheck kept saying that was the wrong thing. I said, no, newbies, you know, like new newbies. Oh, oh, sorry about that. All right, what if, what if we did church like this? Let's, let's talk about this. Pastor mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and I, I just wanted to work it through your mind just a little bit more. It used to be that we kind of had the attitude, and I think we still do down deep, that we want people to act right. In other words, act like us. Be one of us when they get here, right? I mean, that's how it... I, I, I mean, it's just normal. It's natural. I'm not really, I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize or make you feel uncomfortable or I'm not really trying to do that because that's just real and how it is. But what if it was different than that? What if we wanted people to come and belong and then as we shared the truth of Christ with them, with our lives and the way we talked and the way we reacted to things and the way we walked through crisis and problems, that they would then naturally believe and then before you knew it, they would become us because they, they would grow into who we are. Instead, a lot of times we have these, these restrictions, and they're not visible, but they're there. I love that our church, and I like dressing up, but I love that our church dresses down a little bit on Sundays. Here's why. I like to dress up, actually. I have, a, <laughs> I have so many ties. I'll probably never wear them again. I keep telling Nicole, we need to just give these to Goodwill or something, and then she, but there are people who that is a huge barrier for them going to church. Because not very many people in our society anymore dress like that. And that's a barrier. I, I remember the first time we visited here, it was a long time ago now, and uh, we were kind of surprised. Because I haven't been in very many churches that do that, that intentionally dress down a little bit so that people feel comfortable. I like that. I like that. I like that we have greeters at the doors and then out in the lobby. And then when people walk in, there's people talking to them. And I like how Pastor put it the other day, which I thought was really powerful. He said, we're all greeters. Don't get the idea that it's just those guys. Every one of us needs to be greeters and talk to people. And I know that can be difficult and it's tough for me. I feel like I'm brand new, even though we've been here almost a year. And there's still people that I walk up and I think, I don't know if they're new or not. Because I don't know if I've seen them before or not. And I feel silly to say, are you new? Which, you know, they're like, no, I'm not new. I've been here forever. You're new. And 
I don't want to do that. But there's a lot of ways you can do that without having to say those things. You can say, how long have you been at Crown Point Church? Man, that opens up everything. There's plenty of other ways to say that, to start a conversation and to kind of clarify. And I don't, I've gotten over this over the years. I don't mind anymore saying, tell me your name again. I feel silly I forgot. I don't have to go through all that. I just say, tell me your name again. And I don't have to explain it because they know I forgot. But they also know that I care enough to find out what it is again. Now, if I've done that like five times, then I still feel silly and they probably think I'm silly too. But it's still worth finding out their names. You know what else I'd like to encourage you to do? And I'm not asking you to spend a ton of money, but my experience has been that Christians eat, don't we? And I would encourage you to to go out with people. Invite them to your home. Get to know these people in this church. It's an amazing, amazing group of people. I said this before, and I'm still amazed that I've been in this church a number of times in the last six, seven years, but... I didn't know you were here. You know what I'm saying? I, I didn't know you were, I didn't know you people were so great and you were here. I've been in the building. I knew Pastor Newby, knew the staff, but I didn't know about you. I didn't know you, I didn't know this church, the, who, who the church really is. I didn't know you were here. And you won't know that either really unless you really reach out and get to know some people beyond who you're getting to know now. And that can be tough. It can be tough because we get stuck in how we just do things. Let's, let's talk about some other characteristics of maturity. Maturity is a fluid thing. What I mean by that is it's not as if you get to a certain place and you've arrived. It's not like that. Some people give you that impression because they're, they're better at faking it, maybe. Or maybe they've fooled themselves. I don't know. But I know when Pastor Newby talks about something he's learned in the Lord, that frees me to grow and grow and grow because you never get done growing. Not only that, you can be immature again too. You can get to a point of maturity and then something come up and you get your little feelings stepped on and boom, you're back. And that... that old person that was inside you, carnal, fleshy, whatever, comes out. And you're right back. And you can grow again. It's fluid. Let me, let me quickly touch on a couple more things. There's, there's both things involved here in maturity. It's Savior and Lord. Here, here's what I mean by that. I, I, I took this out of, uh, does anybody recognize this? I'll give a dollar to someone who can tell me what this is from. Seriously? Four Spiritual Laws, anybody? Ever seen this track? Oh man, this was like this, this was Campus Crusade, like a college ministry track they use for everything. I love it because it's so descriptive of our lives. Most of us in an immature Christian state, we live like this, where self is on the throne. We're in charge of everything. And all those little dots around us are the things that we consider important. It's our values. It's what what matters to us. And they're in varying degrees as close to us, but we're in charge. And if Christ is involved in us or with us, he's definitely on the outside of that. And we decide when to let him in and what to let him into. And, it, and it's based on our convenience and our comfort. And, you know, there's never going to be a time where we're going to be dangerous about it or anything like that. Because that's just how it is. 
But the difference is when he's Lord, he's there. He's in the middle of our life and he's the one that's directing and controlling everything. And then everything is in the proper perspective where it should be all around, including us. Do you see the difference between, between Savior and Lord? He, he's not the, here to be just our Savior. He's here to be your Lord. And I wanted to say a few things about that. When he's your Lord, it's not as if it's a bad thing or something that you should fight or, or kick against or, or be resistant to. Nothing like that. Because if, if he's really your Lord and you're really a Christian, then you're actually glad he's in charge. Because you know that he wants the best for you and what he wants for you is meant to protect and provide for you. So if it's something he wants, then it's a really, really good thing. And, and part of maturity is knowing that it, it may not be what you want in the temporary, but you know in the eternal scheme of things that he's got your best interest in mind and you trust him in that. Never forget that that was the, that was the base of the lie that the enemy told Eve in the garden. You cannot trust, what he said to her was, you cannot trust God to have your best interest. He's trying to cheat you out of something. That is not true. The truth is, our God loves you. And if you really are a Christian, then you're not trying to get by with whatever you can. Instead, you're trying to get close to him. You're wanting more of him, more and more of him. I recently started praying that prayer. And I don't think I've prayed that for years and years. And I don't know if it was because I didn't recognize my lack of maturity or, or what. But I, I've heard people pray that, God, I want more of you. I want to experience more of you than I had of you yesterday. And in the last, I don't know, three, four weeks, I've been praying that. And it's changed my prayer life. You know what? He wants more of you. You think you want more of him? That doesn't even compare to what he wants with you and the relationship he wants with you. Think of what he gave for that, for that relationship and that depth of relationship with you. I think about a few other things. If, if he's really Lord and it's really what you should have, then you're going to respond to that lordship actually with gratitude. You're thankful that he's thinking of you and directing your life that way. And ultimately, it won't even be, it won't even be a friction issue because you'll want that and it'll just flow with you it'll be a beautiful thing so savior and lord people grow at different rates we've seen that haven't we haven't you been around somebody who's you find out they've only been christian for a while but they seem like this you know saint like paul himself that can happen so let's talk about us for a minute how does this work I really believe that one of the most important things we need to do is recognize where we failed in this, where our shortcomings are in our own maturity. No one is as responsible for your own growth as you are. Pastor's job as the pastor is to guide us and grow us up in the faith by teaching and discipling. We provide ministries and great Sunday school classes and ministries for you to be involved in and for places for you to serve. All those things are functions of the church that help us to grow but ultimately, it's your responsibility. And the, the sad thing is, if you don't really want to grow that bad, you won't grow. On the other hand, if you want to, and you put the effort in, you will grow. Because God is on the other side, wanting it and making it happen. So my question is, what are some of your growth areas? 
that you're needing work on. Let's, let's do this real quick. Just shut your eyes for a second. God, what? Can you speak to us for a minute, Holy Spirit? Just, just reveal to us some of the areas that we lack in maturity. Ask him. Just tell him, God, I want to know. I want more of you. I want to be closer to you, and I want to be more like you. I want to grow in those areas. What are some of those things? I believe that he spoke to a lot of you in that moment, but I also believe that some of us, it's going to be through the night, and he's get, that's going to be a question that's going to haunt you for a few days, and he's going to pursue you because he cares that much about you. Hmm. Growth is intentional. Things like this don't happen by accident. Let's, let's talk about this for a minute. Let me go back. Yes. Um, the question is, what are some growth areas that you have, place, areas you need to mature in? Let's talk about intentionality for a second. Healthy things grow. Healthy organisms grow. They just do. So if you're not growing, then there's a problem with the health in your spiritual life that needs to be fixed. And that's something that, you know, we could talk about more and God can reveal to you. It's something that he wants to work on you and, and to make a difference. I wonder, though, is it, is it, well, let's, let's ask the question in the positive. What are some areas where you have seen maturity in your life? Just survey your life for a few minutes. Maybe you've been a Christian for a year, five years, ten years, twenty. What has changed? Has it been maybe your attitudes, your reactions to things, your emotions? Maybe it's your, maybe it's your outlook on life. Maybe you were someone that was negative and now you see a positive angle to things because God has shown you hope in the future. Maybe it's something like that. Maybe there's something that, that you can look at and, and see, you know what, I've overcome this habit and I never thought it would happen, but with God's help, I have matured in this area. You know what we should do in those cases? We should celebrate those things because that's how God does. He, he moves us and makes us new. Nick, could you guys come? Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like you all to stand for a moment. And as you're standing, let's take a look at this. Paul, what he does in the rest of this book, or the rest of this chapter, is he really illustrates his maturity by his humility. He says it's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. For we are both God's workers. He's talking about him and Apollos. And you are God's field. You are God's building. If you would just shut your eyes again for a moment. I'd like to close tonight with a couple thoughts. One is, Paul says that we are God's building and his, his field and his building and that God makes us grow. Maybe as we've been talking tonight, you felt like, wow, this maturity talk, I feel like I'm not measuring up. And, and maybe as we were talking, the Holy Spirit enlightened things to your mind that areas where maybe you've been short-tempered, maybe there's been things that you know you should have done that you didn't. Maybe there are people that, even in this church, that maybe you weren't as kind to as you should have been because they were a baby Christian and getting kind of under your skin or something. Maybe you find that as we've been talking that you're thinking, God, I'd like to grow more, but I don't know. I, I just think I am how I am. I don't, I don't think I can change. 
If that is you, I really felt in prayer about tonight that you need to hear that that is a lie of the enemy to just keep you locked into a pattern and a habit and a cycle that is not healthy and is not what God intended for you. If you're someone who said that, that phrase, this is just how I am, I don't think I can change or I can't change. That's not true. Paul says in this verse right here that God makes us grow. He does it. A lot of times it's just us getting out of the way and our our attitudes and our insecurities and our lack of faith and just sometimes we lie to ourselves and make excuses and we just need to open up and ask him, God, what is it that I need to change? Can you help me with that thing? Let's do that right now as just a group and in your own mind as you pray, just tell him, God, I want more of you. I want to be closer to you than I've ever been. I want to be more mature. I want to grow up in my faith with you. Tell him that in your own words. Just tell him, what is it, God, that's keeping me from there, from doing that, from, you know, what's something I need to work on? And let him speak that truth to you. You need to be encouraged tonight to know that he is the one that makes you grow. And he will help work in that area with you.